I'd like to invite you to Matthew 18. We'll, we'll be there in just a moment. We are blessed here in Oklahoma City to live in what is often called the Bible Belt. In fact, some people refer to us as the buckle of the Bible Belt here. Uh, and usually what that has mean that, uh, meant, at least traditionally, has been that we kind of swim in a culture that, for the most part, supports our values. Now, as we move along, that's getting farther and farther from the truth. But used to, your neighbor wasn't all that distinctive ethically or morally. The general cloud of the culture was. But one of the things it has meant is that you drive down the road and there is a church on virtually every corner. You, you probably haven't noticed this if you've grown up in or around Oklahoma City area or in the Bible Belt. But you leave this area and you go up north or you go out east and it's not like that. Some of you have served overseas and in Germany or different places like that. If you wanted to go to church, it was an hour or two hours to find a group of 10 or 15 people meeting. I sat down and I was thinking, how many churches do I drive past or near on my way to Wilshire? Five? Anybody more than five? Churches of Christ, yeah. There are 25 churches of Christ within 30-minute drive of my house. 25. I've probably missed some, too. Now, that's a blessing. That means... Across the Oklahoma City area, in our area, there are pockets of people ministering to the community. I think that's great. But with that comes a challenge and a temptation. And the temptation and the challenge is that fellowship, instead of being something of necessity, because something becomes something of convenience. Jim and I have been talking about fellowship on Sunday night, kind of the, to help us think through this and the importance of this as the elders think about how to use our Sunday nights effectively, and, and there'll be more on that coming up. But we wanted to think about the meaning and the significance of fellowship. Some of you have probably heard this story. It's a preacher story that has circulated for years, but it kind of demonstrates the problem that we share in this area. There was a man who was stranded on a desert island. All good stories start that way, don't they? It's a man stranded on a desert island for many, many years. And one day, while strolling along the beach, he spotted a ship off in the distance. This had never happened in all the time he'd been on the island, so he was very excited about the chance of being rescued. Immediately, he built a fire on the beach, generated so much smoke that it worked. The ship that was heading his way stopped. When it was close enough, a dinghy was dispatched to investigate the situation. The man on the island was overjoyed with the chance of being rescued and to meet his saviors. After some preliminary conversation, the man in charge asked the man on the island how he had survived for so many years. The man replied by telling of his exploits for food and how he had been able to make a fine house to live in. In fact, the man said, you can see my home from here. It's up there on the ridge. He pointed them in the direction of his home, and they looked up and they saw three buildings. They inquired about the building next to the man's house, and he replied, That's my church. I go to the church there every Sunday. When he was asked about the third building, the man replied, That's where I used to go to church. (laughs) 
Now, the reason that's funny is because it's, it's so close to home to too many folks that Oklahoma City is dotted with churches. And while it is a blessing to have so many congregations ministering in so many places, that also gives us the temptation to make fellowship less meaningful. Now, before I go any farther, let me clarify something. I believe that we are blessed with some great sister congregations in our area. And Wilshire has worked alongside of them. In fact, even tonight, the Trigastads are here from Memorial Road. So Memorial Road gets a shout out. And they do great ministry there. And the Edmund Church and so many other churches and the work we've done with Eastside. A lot of us are part of those congregations in some way or another. We've gone to their VBSs. Jim and I occasionally get to go speak at some of these churches. They have recovery programs that have served some of us. And there are great ministries being done by these churches. So what I say tonight is nothing at all against any other church. What I have in mind here is a phrase that I came acquainted with just this past week called flock swapping. Flock swapping. It's this, this idea that if fellowship becomes too difficult, all I have to do is go to some other church. That if relationships begin to break down, rather than putting in the effort and the work to make fellowship what it ought to be, I'll just go somewhere else. If I don't like the way Jim preaches, I'll just go somewhere else. If I don't like my Bible class teacher, I'll just go to another church. If the elders upset me about some matter of opinion, it's okay, I've got other choices. And so the church, rather than the community of people where fellowship is something to be, to be invested in, it becomes no different than Walmart. There's a Walmart on every corner in, in Oklahoma City almost. And if one Walmart doesn't have what you're looking for, you go to the other Walmart. And church, if we're not careful, starts to look like that. And I want to suggest that if that's how church is treated in this consumerist market, then we've lost the meaning of fellowship. That our relationships with other congregations are important, but our relationship here is important too. So I'll show you just a few texts tonight that I think suggest a different image of fellowship. And it's an image that fellowship is something to be fought for and not something just to be discarded. Now, one of the first texts is Ephesians chapter 4. And Ephesians is one of these books where fellowship is kind of in the background of what's going on. Paul is arguing with them. Look, Jew and Gentile, you belong in the same body of people. You've got to make this work. That all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And so if it's in Christ, if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We're a holy temple. We are the church of the living God. And so a good part of Ephesians argues that that's the way it ought to be. And then the second half of Ephesians really deals with, here's how you maintain that. And and here's what fellowship looks like. But I just want you to notice, chapter 4 and verse 3. Paul says, Make every effort to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. That's the way the NIV translates it. Make every effort... The English standard says, be eager. The King James Version says, endeavor. The New New American Standard says, be diligent. In other words, you make fellowship a priority. 
You make fellowship something you sweat over, something you work towards. And it's going to take patience, and it's going to take long-suffering. And it's going to take a lot of stuff. But what he's arguing in Ephesians chapter chapter 4 is you don't just walk out the moment it gets inconvenient. You don't just jump ship the moment it gets tough. That this is something you sweat over. You endeavor, you strive, you work at to make our fellowship and our unity in Jesus something that matters. And I would even argue that unity is a principal purpose of the church. That unity isn't just a a convenience or if it happens, it happens. Ephesians will argue that this is one of God's eternal purposes for all of creation, for heaven and earth to be brought together under the Lordship of Jesus. And it starts with the church. And if we can't be unified, then what does that say about the purpose of God? And so when he gets to chapter 4, he says, you sweat this out. You make this matter. Now, I want you to also think about what this would look like in the first century world. I mean, if you became a Christian in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, how were you greeted with your faith by the outside world? I mean, the Roman world and, and the people outside of Judaism, they begin mocking Christians and calling Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They, they believed in some monotheistic god and and because they didn't buy into the, the gods of Rome, Christians were outcasts. And because of that, a lot of uh, business guilds and a lot of social circles, Christians weren't allowed to be a part of. Where did you go? Or if you were Jewish and you read the story of the book of Acts, there comes a moment when the, the synagogue, the, the Jews and the Christians in the synagogues parted ways because the Jewish people no longer recognized Christians as faithful people of God. And so if you're Christian and you're Jewish in the first century world and the Roman culture won't let you in, the Jewish culture won't let you in, where do you get your sense of fellowship and connectiveness? It's your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when things got hard at church, you didn't pack your bags and go to the next church, the next congregation. There wasn't another one. When you... When you disagreed with an elder, or you disagreed with a brother or sister, or you disagreed with the preacher, where else would you go? You worked it out. It was something you strive for, something you work at. And so that explains the language of Paul here and elsewhere in Scripture. Now the other text I wanted to show you is one that was read for us tonight. Matthew chapter 18. Now typically, this verse is one of those verses that's used to talk about disfellowship. Right? This, is the, this is the book, chapter, and verse for how to kick someone out of the church. And it's unfortunate that that's the way this text is often read. Because I think behind Matthew 18 is a totally opposite message behind that one we usually give. This is Jesus giving us instructions for how to deal with conflict in the church. There's a brother, a sister, a relationship that's broken. And you notice what Jesus says to do. It's, it's really different than what you find today. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, you go. You tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
Any of you um, ever been unfriended on Facebook? Ike Wilson unfriended me once. It was, it was a setup deal. Ike, Ike, there was someone posting stuff on his news feed and, and he said, how do, I, how do I not get this? It's inappropriate. He says, I'm afraid if I unfriend them, it'll, it'll send them a message or something and, and, and it'll offend them. And I said, well, Ike, let's do this. You unfriend me and I'll see what happens. So Ike unfriended me and I turned around and posted how rude it was to be unfriended by Ike Wilson. And he didn't see it because he wasn't my friend anymore. It worked out great. But that's what happens in Facebook. If someone annoys you, what do you do? You click unfriend. If someone bothers you, you just turn your computer off and walk away. And the problem is social media has trained up a generation of people to deal with conflict just like that. So that if I'm sitting in the church pew and that person upsets me, what do I do? I unfriend them and I drive to the church next door. Fellowship becomes a thing of convenience and not something of dedication. And Jesus says the church, though, isn't like that. If, you, if your brother sins against you, if you've got an offense, you go to them. You don't ignore them. You don't walk away. You don't pretend nothing. You go to your brother. All right, Jesus, but I've talked to them and they wouldn't listen. I'm done with them. No, you're not. Try it again. Now you take two or three witnesses. As one scholar said, this is kind of a a check on your own judgment. You need to get people who will call you out if you need to be called out. You don't go find people who already agree with you and you know they're going to be on your side in this argument. You find people who are objective, wise people that if you're sitting in that room and the situation is described and you're at fault, that person will say, you know what, they're right. You need to change your life. You're not building a team. You're not trying to put together a mob of people to charge these. You find wise voices that are going to help seek reconciliation in that situation. You don't just walk away from fellowship. Well, all right, Jesus. I went to them once. I took them my fault. They didn't listen. I took two other people in church and they still wouldn't listen. I'm done with them. No, you're not. No, you're not. Bring the entire community of God into work in this relationship. And let's try one more time. You see, the issue of disfellowshipping in Matthew chapter 18 is a last resort. It's not a hair trigger response. It is, Jesus says, you fight for this fellowship that you get. You you fight for the relationship that's in place. You don't just walk out on people and relationships. He said this earlier back in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, if you bring your gift to the altar and you get there and you realize... Uh, that you have uh, fault against your brother, what do you do? You go take care of it. You don't just say, oh, it's no big deal, I'm here to worship, it's just between the Lord and myself. No, you fix that relationship. Because fellowship is something that's supposed to be deep and meaningful. Well, Jesus, I've gone to them and they didn't hear me, they didn't hear the witnesses, I took them to the church, now what do I do? Jesus says, well, now... Now they need to be as tax collectors and sinners. And that phrase is really interesting in the Gospel of Matthew. Because it does mean someone who is an outcast. 
the first century world, tax collectors and sinners, they were the outcasts. They weren't invited to the circles of, of fancy meals and banquets. They were the people nobody liked. The tax collectors who charged you so much money and the, the sinners, everybody knows they're dirty and tainted. You don't want anything to do with them. And Jesus says, after all of this, you treat them outcasts. But let me remind you of something in Matthew. How did Jesus teach, uh, reach out to tax collectors and sinners? He didn't just wipe his hands and walk away. In fact, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, he's having dinner with a tax collector. A tax collector by the name of Matthew. Even after all of this, and even after you struggle to bring this relationship back together and search for reconciliation, even if it's, it doesn't happen at the end of that, they're outsiders, they're outcasts, but you still reach out to them in some way. And I think I'm pretty sure this is the meaning of the text because look around the story of Matthew chapter 18. Right before you get this story, just back up one section in verse number 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over that than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Before he tells you this story of how to bring about reconciliation, Matthew gives you the parable of the lost sheep. It's always interesting to watch the Gospel writers, how they use different stories. Jesus used the lost sheep parable in in Luke chapter 15 when they want to know why are you eating with publicans and sinners. Matthew uses it just before talking about someone in the church who has a broken relationship. You pursue them like that shepherd pursued that one lost sheep. And so the fact that that story precedes this story of going to your brother is fascinating, but so too is the story that follows this story in Matthew. Notice the text afterwards. After Jesus tells him, go to him, go to him again, and go to him a third time, and, and then they're outcasts, you get this story, verse 21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus said to him, I I don't tell you seven times, but 77 times. Isn't that interesting? That in this story of disfellowship, in the background of this text is still the question, how many times do I have to do this? So I go to him and I win him back. But you know what? Next week he's going to do the same thing. Or I went to him, he didn't hear me, and I took the two witnesses with me and they helped us reconcile this. But he's going to turn around and do the same thing. Or I went to him and then I took the witnesses and I went to the church and he finally came back. But you know, next month he's going to do the same thing. When can I write this guy off? When when can I be done with this relationship? How about seven times? You've got to admit for Peter, that's pretty generous. But not generous enough. Jesus says, you go as far as you have to go. And you reach as far as you have to reach. 
and you meet as many times as you have to meet, you fight for your fellowship. You don't just walk out. The frustrating thing is, is it's so tempting to just leave it behind. Because it does take effort. Because some brethren aren't lovable. And Lynn, I just happen to be looking on your side of the auditorium. It's not connected at all. (laughs) Fellowship is hard. And living in the Bible Belt, it's easy to jump ship and go to a different church when things don't go exactly the way you want. And what I'm trying to tell you is that's not the image of fellowship you find in Scripture. God is calling us to deep, meaningful relationships. Relationships that are worth fighting for. Now, don't be fooled. Scripture is clear that there are times when fellowship has to be severed. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, Paul said, you mark those who cause division and you avoid them. That if there's someone who moves into the church, if there's someone who's in the community who's backbiting and and spreading rumor and trying to push an agenda contrary to the Spirit of Christ in the church, if it threatens the fellowship of the entire body, Paul says you withdraw from them, you mark them, you don't have anything to do with them. Because you're preserving the fellowship that's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that odd story of a man sleeping with his father's wife. Paul says you've got to put that out of the church. Anytime a relationship or something threatens the purity and the holiness of the church, the church cannot sit idly by. Or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we have said in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But listen to this. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Even when you have to pull that, that, that situation, even when you have to do that, Paul says, you still don't just say, I'm done. You still struggle with the relationship that is still there. They're not your enemy. They may be unfaithful to the Lord. They may be unfaithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may be threatening the community, but don't treat them as an enemy. They're still your brother or sister in Christ. It is fellowship worth fighting for. And then there's 2 John 9, 3-11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the doctrine of Christ, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. If there is someone destroying the work of God and threatening the unity of believers, you give them no support whatsoever. Why? Because it threatens the fellowship that we share. I have seen too many times preachers and churches who were all too eager to withdraw fellowship. Maybe a preacher takes a position or says something I don't agree with. And the first response is to run out, grab my, my computer and type up a blog and paste them with, they said this, they went there. 
and we write brethren up because they don't teach what we think they ought to teach. Don't be fooled. There are times that that's necessary, but brothers and sisters, that's a last resort. The first thing we do is we go to them as a brother or sister in Christ. That we do everything we can to hold fast to the fellowship we share in Jesus Christ. And when that moment comes that Paul says may have to come, you do it with pain in your heart. But the only reason withdrawing fellowship is ever effective is because fellowship itself matters. Let's face it, in too many places if people withdrawn fellowship from today, that just means they'll sleep in on Sunday. Or they'll go to another church. Because really what's lost if the community says you're, you're not part of us anymore? So I just I want to ask you this question tonight. How do you build relationships that are worth fighting for? How do we make Wilshire that kind of community that says I'm not just walking out when things don't go my way? Or I'm not just walking out even when I disagree with someone on a, a serious issue. It's not my first thing is to walk out. I just suggest a few common practical things. First, we be there when we need each other. You share your life together. If you sit by someone's bedside when they're sick, or you help them when they've lost their job, or you struggle with them when they're struggling, or even when you celebrate with them when they celebrate, you become an intricate part of their life. We share faith together. We talk about our struggles and our temptations and we talk about our convictions and we celebrate our unity in Jesus Christ. We share our faith together. You've heard me talk about this before, but go to baby showers and wedding showers of people you don't know. Because you're building a relationship and you're saying as a community of people, we are praying blessing on your new family. It's tempting, I know it's tempting, to say, well, I don't know that person, so I won't go. But what if that's their first impression of you? I didn't know their name. I'd never met them before, but when they found out we were having a baby, they showed up to say, we want to help you. When they found out we were getting married, I'd never seen them or had a conversation before. But you know what? That picture that hangs in our living room, I know who gave that to us. And it becomes symbolic of a deeper relationship. Yesterday when I sat at the funeral for Jim's mother, it was a beautiful service, I sat next to Ryan and Tammy Newell. And as I sat there, I remembered them driving to McLeod, Oklahoma for my father's funeral. And I remember the faces of a lot of you guys who drove to McLeod, Oklahoma for my father. You never met my father. Most of you never had. But when his service was there, you came out for me. You know what else I remember? I remember on that Sunday afternoon when my father died, 
Ryan Newell was standing next to me. Now say what you want about Ryan, and there's lots to say, but you don't forget stuff like that. That's what fellowship we're fighting about, fighting for, looks like. It's those relationships when we walked with someone, when we've stood beside someone, when we've celebrated with them, when we've hurt with them. You don't just say, I'm going to a different church. You don't just walk out when things don't go your way. That when we have deep abiding fellowship, you'll go once and you'll go twice with witnesses and you'll take it to the church and you'll keep praying and you'll keep praying and you'll keep praying. And the last thing you'll ever do is walk to another congregation. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A body of believers who share that kind of relationship. You may have seen in the news this past week the story of Roberta Yersway in Panama City. She and her family were out on the beach swimming and she noticed her sons were too far from shore. The boys were screaming, so Yersri and her relatives swam to them, but they were trapped in a riptide. She said, I honestly thought I was going to lose my family that day. And then a witness said, we looked up, and there were 30 people forming a human chain to go down into the water. And starting with the children, the 30 people began towing the swimmers along the human chain and pulled them back to the shore. Yersri said, I was so grateful. These people were God's angels that were in the right place at the right time. I owe my life and my family's life to them. Without them, we would not be here. Someone else said, it was the most remarkable thing to see. These people who don't even know each other, and they trust each other that much to get each other to safety. If a group of 30 people who are totally strangers can do that, what can a body of believers, 250 strong, who know each other very intimately, what can we do for each other? And what can we do for this community? And brothers and sisters, when you have that kind of fellowship, you will do everything in your power to keep it. You will strive diligently to maintain the unity and the bond of peace. We welcome you to that fellowship here at Wilshire tonight. If you're not a Christian, if you'll accept the message of the Gospel and the fact that Jesus died for you and you'll obey Him in the waters of baptism, you'll become part of a community that is called to fight for each other. And that's what we want Wilshire to be. And so if we can welcome you to that community tonight, or as your brothers and sisters pray for you to help you in any way, we urge you to come while we stand and sing.